Good evening. I'm Kate France. And I'm Tabby Tyler. Tonight we talk about the do's and don'ts of historical preservation. So grab a beverage. It's time for a night in. So, my beverage after my hard day, you know, plowing through social media and uh, everything that's going on in the world these days is uh, being finished off with a glass of mead. Oh, friendly. <laughs> friendly. As usual. Friendly like the buzzy bee who made it. I, uh, <laughs> I'm having scotch, so. Ex- excellent. I went from <laughs> hating scotch to suddenly drinking, like single grain not even age just like you burn your throat as it goes down scott i don't know i really i really like that i'm drinking literally alcohol alcoholic honey that's what this is this is alcoholic honey and you're drinking like bougie antiseptic uh yeah (laughs) in terms of harshness it's true it's true i like the pain or you know the lack thereof (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't know if we could get more polar opposite in our beverage choices mm. here, but um, <laughs> yeah. But we're so going to need these drinks to talk about what we're going to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Which is a which recur- is, recurring theme with us, actually. Yeah, yeah. We, we we handle history, especially American history, with a, a glass of steadying booze in our hand. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you know. It's got to get done. The conversation has to happen. Um, but uh, basically everything we're doing, like everything in the world is being communicated right now, like you and I right now, through the internet. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like that is how we're experiencing the world through each other's eyes. And, you know, it's great in some respects because I'm getting so many points of view that people people are just sharing so much information right now and their stories on Instagram, on on Twitter, um, on TikTok. There's like revolutionaries on TikTok. It's amazing. And so, you know, I spend a lot of my time experiencing other people's stories on on social media to try to gain new viewpoints and i came across one and i sent you the yahoo news <laughs> article on it uh but um jill scott shared her experience uh as a black woman touring a plantation and it was extremely uncomfortable to watch, um, as it should be, because she was extremely uncomfortable experiencing it. You know, and, and from our point of view, it makes sense that she's uncomfortable, and it's kind of jarring that there are people out there who don't understand this, but essentially she is touring this plantation in the South, and she is being given you know, this, this detailed tour about the carpets and the, the furniture and what everyone was doing in these rooms and what the experiences were like and how these parties were. And, you know, there's a giant glaring hole in the Southern experience pre-Civil War that's not being spoken of, mm-hmm. you know, and you can see on her face 
how traumatic it is that she is basically being gaslit by a version of history. Yeah. And it it really hit home for me that that's the, a, a portion of the trauma that today's Black Americans experience is that there is a portion of their ancestral trauma of of the just abject suffering that their ancestors experienced that is the attempt is being made to kind of just push that to the side and pretend it didn't happen. Yeah, you said earlier, like, that portion of history, it's like she's being gaslit. And it's it's kind of like, what are you talking about? That never happened. You're crazy. Like, you're equal now. Things are fine, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> come on. This plantation's a bed and breakfast now. Like, literally, a bed and breakfast. Yeah, they turned yeah. it into a bed and breakfast. You said she, she was offered the, the slave quarters, which is, you know. Right. Totally you know, but they've been. Appropriate. Yeah, they've been remodeled. They're beautiful. It's fine. And it's like, no, that is so far from fine. Yeah, and what she says in the video, she's like, by the way, I think we didn't say it, but this is an Instagram video. Um, But what she says in the video is, like, you wouldn't stay at Auschwitz. Are you kidding? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You would never turn Auschwitz into a bed and breakfast. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it, it shows in that statement because it's true. These places were work death camps for black enslaved people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it shows how far our version of taught history has gone from reality that that sentence is jarring, that we have that you could turn this place into a bed and breakfast and sure, have it sure. be and, and again, acceptable. like the the myth of the chivalrous South, because that's what this is, right? Ha- has mm-hmm. been perpetuated throughout our education system even to to today you and i were talking earlier and you had said that in school you when you learned about slavery you focused on you know this slave had a great life (laughs) yeah yeah there was this weird emphasis on but some slaves were fine. Some, you know, some slaves were were and treated great. And excuse me, I, I don't mean to mean I don't mean to say slave. I mean to say enslaved person. Well, in this case, this we're quoting yeah. our teachers yeah. at the time, who first of all called these enslaved people slaves, mm-hmm. which dehumanizes them. You know, first of all, so we're not even being taught about these people as people, and then secondarily we're being told that it's like but it's fine because some of them didn't suffer quite as much as others which is such a bizarre philosophy to ingrain in children's minds Mm -hmm. yeah but you know there's there's a precedent for this i want to bring up basically the post-civil war era where when historians in the south started writing about the south they embraced this concept this romanticized concept of of the chivalrous south and uh historiography became hagiography and they started writing about the south as if it was like this saintly beautiful place and the relationships between master and slave was maybe more like you know benevolent father right yeah Yeah. and and projecting some weird paternal fantasy upon an enslaved person and you know they're 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 essentially like hostage taker is just mm. horrifying but what's interesting <laughs> about this is that the north allowed this to happen there was an absolute mm-hmm. 
demand for the creation of a national unity after the Civil War between the North and the South, that it became something that was allowed to happen. And then fast forward to the Daughters of the Confederacy writing the history books that students look at probably even to this day in some states that just romanticized the antebellum period in the South. And you, yeah, and you see this... um, really reflected in I hate generalizing on ages but it's it's very much in boomers and gen zers uh, pardon me gen xers uh who are so reluctant to accept a more realistic history as truth mm-hmm. um There is an article we referenced a few episodes, several episodes back, uh, uh, Dear Disgruntled White Plantation Visitor uh, by Michael Twitty, and he describes people's reactions to, he's um, a historical interpreter. He he basically uh, presents history as it stands. He's he's a black gentleman, uh, and he presents the history of his ancestors through food. He's a chef, uh, through the, the food that they, they cooked at the time and, um, you know, through the work they did at the time. And so he presents this to plantation visitors, and their responses are usually dismissive or um, almost degrading because they just aren't accepting of his presentation as truth as much as they perceive it to be sort of an, an extremist version of history. Well, I mean, they're, and there I to think see, they're there to see the grandiose nature of plantations. They want to see the the big dining rooms, the furniture, the carpets, the, the dra- Greek columns. Yeah, all that nonsense. And so yeah. they don't want to be... They don't want to be told about slavery. They don't want to feel guilty, as it were. And he, he says that Sometimes when he talks about slavery, people say, Ugh, like, can you just show us the house or can you just not, you know? Yeah, could you just not? And it's, it's A, they don't want the illusion, the fantasy disrupted. But I, I do think there's an element of, you know, you, you go through at least 12 grades of public schooling where you're told a much prettier version and then... This one man is uh, giving you a very different, much more accurate version, much more violent version Mm -hmm. where your fantasy is disrupted. And there is a certain level of, uh, like, I guess, I don't know if it's propaganda, but the the programming, the programming Mm -hmm. that you've been taught from from this kind of education makes you kind of go, that doesn't seem right. No, no, no. You're making a big thing out of nothing. But that that becomes such a barrier to progress. I mean, we have two examples here. One plantation where there's a more realistic depiction of what happened. Another plantation that's not realistic at all. And people kind of indicate, they signal that they they want to see the not realistic, just really pretty version. And so there's like a financial impetus to show the paying customers what they want to see, which ultimately becomes like a barrier to portraying history in a truthful way. Um, And then again, we're talking about the education system right now and how your programming works against you, which is again, ultimately a barrier to progress. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, you can't expect someone like Mr. Twitty to somehow undo a, a lifetime's education in, you know, the the 30 minutes he has with this person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he, he works at a really great plantation where they, they do handle all angles of it. And he's traveled the world and, and been able to give these, these stories of his ancestors and really honor what they went through. Um, and so there is a right way to do it. And there is an audience for it. And I think we are moving into an era where this history is going to be taught, whether people like it or not. Um, but there there is that other side, that resistance and that, that fantasy and that bubble that has to be burst. Sure, but sure. I think that's so that just, is very clearly like a don't of historical preservation. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. And and historical preservation, when you when you in you know, embark on that mission, you do have a sort of honor bound agreement to preserve an accurate form of history and not just revise it and put a pretty white supremacy bow on the top of it and be like it's fine now mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and so they do have that responsibility yeah um we wanted to talk about but, yeah did you have another thought there no. no okay yeah um we we wanted to talk about kind of historical preservation in two different ways we talked about it in regard to plantations and how they've they've yes managed to preserve the building itself that's all i'm going to say in regard to that it's like okay so you're preserving. yeah they've managed to really preserve those greek columns they sure did like. yeah um <laughs> but there's still definitely improvements in in some of them that can be made in regard to the historical narrative um something else interesting that we've touched on in previous conversations between each other is uh kate and i talk a lot yeah is uh (laughs) so we're referencing constantly conversations that all of you are not privy to but believe it or not this is what we talk about all the time um (laughs) Um, historical preservation of like neighborhoods and historic buildings and old cities and this and that and um basically it's it's like not just the preservation of plantations that have a negative impact on uh black communities um no, no. Um, districts of neighborhood, uh, districts and neighborhoods, historic districts, you know, just preserving them is a way of pushing a narrative one way or another. But, uh, yeah, potentially on, depending on how it goes. Like for a small little history lesson, there was a big movement of affluent white people into the burbs, um, like early 20th century. And then at some point in like the 60s, 70s, there became these movements to take back the city. Now, take back the city is is kind of interesting. When they went to the burbs, the working class remained behind in the cities. And so the old town cities kind of became um, the neighborhoods of minority groups. And the take back the city movements were the affluent urban uh, suburban li- living, jeez, suburban residents moved back into the cities. Coincidentally, they had a tendency to displace the working class that was living there. Um, the back to the city movements also sometimes were historical preservation movements, where old 
1800s row houses were, you know, taken into the hands again of, of the affluent community, generally the white community. And um, this revitalization often had a very destabilizing effect on low-income residents. In the 60s, the sociologist Ruth Glass used the word gentrification to describe the influx of middle-class individuals into working-class communities. And gentrification is a really hot-button word right now. Mm. And, and because it does disproportionately affect people of color, specifically black people, mm. um, because systematically the working class is also disproportionately black or, you know, mm-hmm. people of color. Um, and so when this kind of thing happens, they do tend to be displaced. Their businesses, small businesses get displaced. And so, you know, it's one of the many systemic things that really need to be addressed in this country. Mm-hmm. Wait, I'm sorry. I actually lost you because my internet is bad. Oh, <laughs> you were probably like hanging uh, on the edge for me to respond. I was. I was like, and yeah. she'll have a thought. Um, <laughs> no, I was. I was saying that you know, gentrification is a really hot button word um, because it does displace disproportionately black people and people of color um, and their businesses. There's you know, small businesses, burgeoning small local economies can get decimated sure, sure. through and movements I mean, of gentrification. Broad. Broad changes would be like the change in the character of the neighborhood, the change in the identity of the neighborhood, loss of diversity, lack of affordable housing suddenly, uh, decrease in multifamily housing. Uh, You've got really big conflicts between traditional old residents and new residents. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Or the loss of residential units uh, through converting into... Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, there was this book that you and I were referencing when we were doing this reading. It was called The Living City, and you guys will just have to, like, forgive me, because I don't know when it was written exactly, but I think it was written in, like, the 70s or 80s, I think. Uh, a quote from it, though, is, Gentrification is primarily a problem in those neighborhoods where public policy abets accelerated speculation, does little to assist in-place residents to stay, and in fact, encourages the new investor with a variety of incentives, but provides no encouragement for in-place residents to stay, end quote. Now, uh, speculative uh, speculation in this uh, in this frame is referring to uh, speculative building or speculative development, which is essentially purchasing a lot or property and building or retrofitting a space without having a buyer in mind Mm. you'll see this a lot or or you may have seen this a lot in uh, the early aughts the early 2000s when you know people would put up these big old condominiums and in the middle of a city and not actually have any homeowners in mind and a lot of builders do do this but just like in the early 2000s it can lead to a lot of empty spaces because it's essentially a gamble you know you're buying this space this property when prices are low with the intention of of making a profit and selling at a higher price so you do have a, a tendency to put up an apartment building and not have any tenants for years even i think though like in regard to gentrification though there probably is 
more of like a targeted buyer. Like, let's say you're you're trying to take back a historic district, right? And you know mm-hmm. that maybe there is motivation within like the affluent community to buy into that area. Then you have accelerated mm-hmm. speculation with the hope that all of these affluent people are going to come in and take over the area. Oh, for sure. So, and and generally speaking, though, that like you're saying, the speculative interest in this area is not the people who live there. Yes. You know what exactly. I mean? Like, exactly. And so that's that's an important aspect of this is that when gentrification is done in this way, there's a lack of interest and, and uh, investment in the both the community that exists and the people that live there. Sure, yeah, because you basically get to a point where like the city doesn't see any inherent value in that community and doesn't see any benefit to investing in and benefiting the people who live there. Uh, like the quote says, they don't give them any assistance or encouragement to stay. And I think yeah. um, the the results are are pretty obvious. I mean, it forces people out. But I guess it's it's pretty myopic the the leaders in policy who desire this for this to happen because like the people who are displaced out of the community, they don't disappear. They just move somewhere else, which ultimately, you know, causes a lot more uh disruption De- you know yeah dis- destabilization, destabilization is the word i really meant yes thank you yeah mm-hmm. because you you've got people uprooted from their lives because they can no longer afford a place that they have you know grown roots mm-hmm. and are expected to find a place to live now and you know migrations of people are disruptive and it's just it doesn't allow for growth yeah this is another one of those systemic things that doesn't allow um you know minority communities to really thrive yeah in a lot gentrification, of ways and ultimately gentrification doesn't help solve a community problem like for sure it's 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 an imbalance between the rich and the poor and Low-income communities aren't viewed as assets, and you just have, um, you just have basically a recipe for disaster. Again, like yeah. it's a matter of like looking at the working class and saying we need to invest in this community, and we could probably create more inherent value within our own, you know, city community. For whatever. sure, um, and it can be done well. You know, it can be done in such a way. uh, And then that was kind of what this book um, really taught me was that it really can be done well. It's been done well in several different cities. Sure, yeah. And it just takes time and and research and... Well, and and then speaking uh, of the idea of a community or a city recognizing, like, a certain community as an asset rather than a, a problem is, for example, Savannah, Georgia, I think it was in the 70s, there was this big push to preserve the, the excuse me, the Victorian district, right? Mm-hmm. Without actually gentrifying the district. Um, and that was, that was basically pioneered by Lee Adler, who had a lot of experience in restoring old town Savannah, like the, mm-hmm. the old downtown Savannah. 
Um, basically, once all of that was rebuilt, all of the historians and preservationists are looking around for more property. They need another to fix. Preserve, yeah. And, um, <laughs> we gotta preserve more. They kind of like honed in on the Victorian district, but Lee Adler was very forward-thinking, and he didn't want to create uh, destabilization by basically kicking all of the working class people out of the Victoria district. He just saw the ability to fix it and preserve it and add it as an asset to the city. And Savannah has one of the biggest tourist industries, you know, in the state. Yeah. But their method, his method and his society's method was to buy property from absentee landlords. Um, because a lot of the people living in, in the, they were slums. The Victorian district was a slum. And a lot of the people living in the slums didn't own the property. They just, uh, rented from they were renting. people who don't live there. An absentee landlord is somebody who owns the building or the, you know, the, the property, but doesn't actually live there or have any like active management involved in, you know, maintaining it. And so it, it quickly became a very slummy area um another thing that i kind of realized when i was doing the research for the show was that absentee landlords don't really have an incentive to maintain a property because if if you allow it to become pretty much like garbage right the property value is less and then your taxes are less um so, so the less work they put into their property, the less it's worth and the less they have to pay ultimately in taxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, buy property from absentee landlords. And they did this through pu- public and private funding. Um, he renovated hundreds of homes and then he rented them back to the working class at 30% the cost of the rent. And then the rest of the rent was covered by federal subsidies. That's awesome. And so this was primarily the same demographic that lived in the area, or the same people um, and tenants I, that lived I in the area prior. I think I lost prior. you, Tabby. And this was primarily the same tenants and demographic that lived there originally, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Um, sorry, I'm, Which I'm having kind of some technical difficulty. I can hear you now, but I lost you before, so... No worries. Okay. We'll keep moving on. Will, there. I will bear with you. You know, I have um, eight I, o'clock, like seven thirty, eight o'clock is the worst time because it's everybody coast to coast is on the internet right now and apparently it just causes a lot of traffic no. in the web. No. We've met the, the highways traffic jam the internet's traffic jam. We certainly have, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But thank you for um, uh thank you for going along will, with us intrepid listeners. You. Um Um and so it's interesting because Lee Adler really took inspiration from a couple different cities that had done it successfully prior to this, mm-hmm. uh, Pittsburgh and Cincinnati. And Cincinnati was really interesting to me um, because they basically, the city council assigned a board of a, a group to, you know, look into renovating this, this uh, section of the city cal- called uh, Mount Auburn. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, they 
it galvanized this group of eight people into creating a nonprofit. They got $7,000 from a uh, investor, a former Cincinnatian, and um, they started doing the same thing. They, they bought absentee-owned homes. Um, 75% of the homes in Mount Auburn were absentee-owned. Mm-hmm. Isn't that insane? That is insane. Like, you can... That's the majority of the community oh, is not all rental owned property by the community. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, they ultimately uh, sold these properties to people committed to restoring them or turned them into tenant cooperatives. Yeah. And tenant cooperatives are really cool. I, I they're, They were more popular, and I think they're better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they kept control of the property within the community, and you didn't have to worry about some, you know, somebody who could ultimately be more in favor well, sure, of... sure, yeah, because you have people who are invested in the community, one, and it also creates, like, a community equity. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and uh, to the point where they had a, a like, sort of motto that was called, that was uh, renovate, not relocate. Mm-hmm. And I really liked that. They they galvanized the community. Uh, they helped them invest in their own properties. They helped these properties become their own properties, first of all. And it gives this community that already has a sense of community, that already has a sense of identity, you know, real ownership and real agency sure, sure. and real leverage too i mean they took that seven thousand dollar investment and leveraged it into a nine million dollar non-profit organization which especially in uh 1967 when they started that's a lot of money sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah and so you know that it's it shows it can be done sure and yeah i mean those are those are definitely the how-to's and yeah, and, and it shows th- time after time, um, Living City, the Living City showed that it was ultimately for the city cheaper to reinvest, to renovate, not relocate, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, really embrace what they had rather than bulldozing and gentrifying. Sure. Which I think is great. And the thing that I really took away from this, though, is that. When you read the book, when you read Lee Adler's methods and you read what happened in Cincinnati and uh, Philadelphia, each community had a slightly different approach. Mm-hmm. They had to be original because every community is different. Mm-hmm. And, every, you know, you can't do some kind of nationwide gentrification program and expect it to succeed. You've got to work with what the community has. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And ultimately to i think a better result yeah and it's interesting i mean they all were very innovative lee adler was a very affluent individual who had the ability to leverage uh policy and gain money from you know his community and also also you know the government uh ultimately through like public funding and then you look at like the cincinnati uh community where they were not affluent people. They were community members, and they just used the investment in their own town. So anyway, yeah, I mean, it's again, it's not, there's no federal overarching method to solve the the problems of um, disenfranchisement, lack of equity, um, 
gentrification, things like that. It, it ultimately becomes a community-run approach. Yeah, and, um, you know, my local representative, Omari Hardy, who I've now mentioned three episodes in a row, uh, he, he got on Instagram Live um, and really talked about how racism in our neighborhood, in our city, is really reflected in policy. And I think that if we really want to change our policy, if we really want to, you know, influence change and invest in our community, we kind of have to do as he was suggesting and really make sure that the policies, the rules in place, and the city are all reflective of our desires and indicate that we want to reinvest in the community and get and, and we have to kind of divorce ourselves from these ultimately systemically racist policies like redlining mm-hmm. um which has very much led to kind of a, an incidental segregation here mm-hmm. and as well as zoning issues zoning laws yeah, and briefly describe yeah. what redlining is so essentially redlining is the denial of services by the federal government or local governments um to to selective groups of people um primarily it's racially motivated and so redlining in this sex uh, in this way um was generally about mortgages about lending you know mortgages lending city loans things like that mm-hmm. um were denied black people mm-hmm. In certain areas. Mm-hmm. And that, by default, created segregation. Sure, and it, it forced them to live in our area, certain areas. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. It created, quote-unquote, black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods because you just were un- you were less likely to get a loan or a mortgage for an address in certain neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, and you, you know wouldn't be provided services in certain neighborhoods um, to go so far as, as like ambulances and police services for black people in certain neighborhoods. Um, and some of this was implicitly stated and some of it was implied. Um, but this created people living in neighborhoods where they knew that they would be able to exist mm-hmm. peaceably. You know, you're you're going to go to the neighborhood where if you have a heart attack, you can get an ambulance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and you're also going to live in a place where you can actually get a mortgage. So if we want to really have a more diverse neighborhood, if we really want to have a city reflective of these um, values, then we have to disassemble the policies that are still in place today that uphold redlining and things like that in a roundabout way. You know, they don't they don't say on paper anymore, hey, you know, don't give a mortgage to a black guy in this zip code, but the the philosophy that put it in place is still there. Wait, you know what I'm hearing? The dog, my kid, everything? <laughs> no, no, no. What I'm hearing is that it's important that we vote in our local governments. Oh, yeah. No, that 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 is literally the point of I think every episode leading to November from us. <laughs> um, Thank you for but listening you have to, to this vote. whole show. This is actually our plug for voting. You got to vote. Yeah. 
Uh, you didn't know it, but we work for Rock the Vote. And yeah, right. uh, <laughs> but, um, this is all just a really long ad. Um, they couldn't get real celebrities this year because uh, yeah. of COVID. So it's us. Yeah. Um, no, but I think I think ultimately that's the thing, though. It's like, so if you want to, if, if you want to stop, like, the city developers abetting accelerated speculation if you want to stop the practice of like redlining you have to vote for people who are going to have the the best interests in mind of like working class communities i mean gentrification is real nice it makes an area look real pretty but like it doesn't actually solve any underlying problems and societally it is toxic Mm -hmm. sure because once again it is putting down those who are the least paid and appreciated by society. Yeah. And so, yeah. and that happy note. Yeah, I, I, I heard, Do something uh, about it. I heard your dog. Get out I there. I heard your baby. I heard your husband. It sounds like your world is very busy. So. Uh, oh, yes, it is. So this mead, uh, this mead will go unfinished. Uh, no, it's going to go finished right now. Because a mother's job Ready? is never One, finished. two, three. Chuck, chuck, chuck. <laughs> All right, now I can handle anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the elixir of the gods. Uh, Tyler and France me. do not condone drinking in any way. <laughs> do hey. not condone alcoholism <laughs> and irresponsible drinking. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Have a wonderful evening. Hey, you too. Thank you so much. You too. I'm going to go put a baby to bed. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye.